released in early 2000, Bloodflowers is the last substantial release in The Cure's discography. A lot of people consider Wild Mood Swings the band and Robert Smith's like rock bottom, but the sad reality is that things got much worse in the two years after Wild Mood Swings' release, culminating in a ruinous European tour in the summer of 1998. These 13 shows live in infamy. At the Lyon date, Smith was so fucked up he could barely walk on stage. He had to be helped off stage after lying on the floor for like two minutes at the end of Disintegration. It's one of the worst performances in the band's career. Smith consistently failed to remember the lyrics to songs, which was not uncommon, but it'd be one or two. It wasn't every song every night. These shows were just appalling. And it's important because it's not just like a bad run of shows. This tour cost the Cure fans. It damaged their reputation and that had never happened before this isn't like the swing tour on the back of wild mood swings where you know it's bad timing you didn't get a record out it's a weak album people just didn't show up in europe the cure had been bulletproof for 20 years they sold out everywhere they almost sold out the o2 in prague on the 96 original leg of the swing tour but you know jason cooper was still shaky in 98 and there's no new material to market here and you add in smith who's going through this self-pitying death dance over overturning 40 and the cure just became a walking embarrassment even diehard fans were saying it they should really call it a day the skin bat Heading into 2000, The Cure were just written off. They were has-beens with no third act. Bloodflowers is the third act. The years between Wild Mood Swings and Bloodflowers ran pretty much the same as the years between Wish and Wild Mood Swings, but without any music to show for it. Nothing happens. Smith bounces from whim to whim, one favored collaborator to the next, who's in, who's out, who's got his ear. It was really like a Henry VIII situation with Smith and The Cure after the Wish Tour, and it still is today in so many ways. The guys in this band were already living legends in their 20s. And like, yeah, they all but wasted their 30s. They threw away three quarters of the 90s. And that continued right up to where Smith's about to turn 40 in 1999. But to people in the music industry, 40 is not not old. 40 seems old to music fans and, and music critics who relish the chance to take pot shots like at an aging rocker's physical slide. Smith wasn't able to pivot into something that fans and critics could embrace. He wasn't able to become sort of a Gary Glitter dad rocker, you know, like where everyone's in on the joke. It's got layers to it. You can access sort of nostalgic, winsome emotions, but most of it is panto. I think the reason is that Smith just wasn't old enough the Cure weren't old enough and hadn't been retired enough because of all the stuff they were throwing together and the little compilation tracks, but they kept getting huge promotional cycles. And that's what made them feel so dated because they shouldn't have been getting that attention. The material didn't warrant it.
big highlight in the late 90s up until the release of Blood Flowers is January 1997. David Bowie invites an all-star cast of musicians to celebrate his 50th birthday. You got Lou Reed, like a baby Foo Fighters, Billy Corgan, and Smith shows up and he's sober, he's pulled together, and he accompanies Bowie on Quicksand and The Last Thing You Should Do from Earthling. Quicksand was probably the highlight of the entire evening, and you hear the crowd cheer when Bowie announces him. There's no mistaking the power Robert Smith has, like even at this point, as a name. There's a friend, guy from England with uh, one, of the, one of the best, I think, most eccentric British fans. I've been a huge fan of theirs for years. This is Robert Smith from The Cure. It's really rousing, and Robert totally does it right. He knows he's the attaché here. You know, he's here to serve the king. And the music director of this event is Bowie's longtime songwriting partner and guitarist since Tin Machine in the late 80s, Reeves Gabrels. Gabrels is exactly the guitar hero Smith has been missing since Pearl Thompson left after Wish. And Reeves is more than that. He's something Smith has really not had. Reeves is a polished songwriter and studio player, not just the live gunslinger. And most importantly, he's been working with David Bowie for 10 years to this point. Like, If there's anyone more famous and imposing to consider working with and in the shadow of than Robert Smith... It's David Bowie. Reese Gabrels can basically just walk around anywhere and get a gig because it shows everybody, it certainly shows Smith without a word, that this guy can hang with David Bowie. He can watch that man, let him be the star, and give him the kind of bedrock, the foundation, and the confidence to do what he needs to do and know that so much of this other piece, it's handled. While Gabrels doesn't join the cure permanently until 2012, in the window between Wild Mood Swings and Bloodflowers, he is Smith's songwriting partner, and Smith completely gives the reins to him. Wrong Number was a pretty alarming single. It went completely electro. I had the best laid plans inside of America. Started on a joy, finished with Angelica. Read the blue song with a snow white smile. It really gets on my nose that he steals his own vocal melody. Essentially, he takes it from open for the chorus of Wrong Number. But it's definitely a Cure song in the vein of Fascination Street and certainly Never Enough. Wrong Number ultimately works. Yes, it sounds like the older Robert Smith and the new Cure and all that. But I'd rank it overall but like three songs on Wild Mood Swings. Gabrels and Smith do a trade. Smith sings on a song on Reeves' album, Ulysses, called Yesterday's Gone. This song and Gabrels' album, Ulysses, were kind of botched early direct internet releases and for that reason they've sort of been lost to time but this is a very important song because it's the sonic and really even the emotional template for about half of blood flowers something i heard or maybe something i read was like yesterday's over something i did or something i said like yesterday's done Something I felt, or maybe something I thought, like yesterday's over. Something I took, something I saw, like 
A lot of fans, 20 years later, have never heard or heard of Yesterday's Gone. I mean, yes, it's on YouTube, but it's a Reeves Gabrell song featuring Robert Smith on vocals. It's never appeared on any Cure release. They don't play it live. Reeves Gabrell plays it live with his band. But what most people heard from this period is a really throwaway song called More Than This from the X-Files soundtrack. It's just another one of these drum loop pieces, you know, built up in Pro Tools, throwing a bunch of kind of aimless, not really melodic, just droning loops shit on the back of it and the lyrics are really sophomoric more than this is on join the dots but i don't think i've listened to it twice the whole way through honestly and then the last piece of the sort of reeves and robert triptych is an overtly reeves song it's almost like a cars song called a sign from god And for whatever reason, this didn't go out as The Cure or Reeves Gabrels, but as Cogasm, the worst fucking band name of all time. It appears on the Orgasmo soundtrack. Not that anybody remembers this movie, but it was Matt Parker and Trey Stone's self-indulgent piece of piss paid for with South Park money. And it's all coming out of the fact that Smith had guest starred famously relatively early in South Park's run, where, you know, Kyle infamously screams, well, like that's all that episode's about the Mecha Streisand episode of South Park it's just Trey Parker and Matt Stone using their platform to broadcast that sentence on American television disintegration is the best album ever you know he let things get to this point he'd been running away from himself and from the cure as a concept all through the 90s and he just couldn't see what the problem was and it's that he wasn't writing good enough music music that could support or extend or even justify the continued existence of the cure and if he was going to get over and conquer this increasingly hardened public opinion that the cure had nothing left there's only one way out write a good album So it ain't being positive about Bloodflowers, and this is the only Cure album after Wish that I rate at all. There are two egregiously negative aspects of this record to get out of the way. First is the album art which is another example of Robert Smith letting his obstinate controlling streak damage this band. The Cure's album covers through Wish are among the best sleeves of all time. Dark Side of the Moon, Houses of the Holy, Unknown Pleasures, Head on the Door and Kiss Me are fucking Andy Warhol status in my book. But Smith wants to change partners. He stops working with Paul Thompson and Andy Vellum, who together traded as parched art, and they designed all of The Cure's iconic album sleeves, and more importantly, the typefaces. The Cure have multiple iconic fonts in their discography fonts that are as memorable as like Def Leppard's logo or like the early Peter Gabriel self-titled right I don't know I'll start a podcast called Final Fantasy next year we can get into it but the first indication that something has gone disastrously wrong on the design side of the house is the five swing live EP this is a totally dashed off I think five song limited edition live EP they put out in 1997 everyone ignored this and they ignore it to this day but it was actually a fiction records release and the cover looks like it was printed on a fucking HP inkjet printer. It is unbelievable how amateurish the design of this thing is. This is Robert Smith for no good reason deciding he can and should have input on their packaging. 
and presentation. It's this I'm an adult now situation he's going through in his 30s where anyone else's input is an affront to his you know, genius or vision, at least. And anyone who's known him since he was a kid, maybe they're condescending to him or they think they know better than him. He got so fucked up with paranoia over this stuff at various points. He couldn't see the value of all these other people who helped and had a hand in, you know, manufacturing the cure as an entity, the total package of the cure. It takes a village and Smith started kicking against it. He was blowing up the world for the sake of satisfying his ego. And for Blood Flowers, he outsources the art direction to Styler Rouge. So Styler Rouge is Rob O'Connor's shop. He broke out with the Creatures Wild Things EP in 81. And this is the one with Susie and Budgie half naked on the cover. But his foundry is like 20 years old at this point, And it's just become a production shop. He's handing out assignments to his underlings. And from here on out, there's a credit you can see on all the Cures 2000s releases. Smart with the s and in lowercase and the art in all caps, that's Robert Smith. So the design is terrible and overlorded by Smith. And then the logo, this like childish digital scrawl, this is done by a 22-year-old intern at Electra Records who just graduated SVA. And next to it is blood flowers in all caps in fucking Times New Roman. Like this is the most basic font, you know, after Helvetica in the English speaking world. Like honestly, the only way this could have been worse is if they used Transport, the UK highway road sign font from 1957. It's just shocking and the booklet is also all caps times new roman with like low resolution shit copy paste of random studio photographs perry bamont had been taking the image of smith himself on the cover is pixelated to the point of absurdity whoever did this knew nothing about digital design and what you need to do in terms of pixels to translate that into print it, it looks like a homemade cdr cover a 14 year old kid made in paint shop pro for like a bunch of rare Cure MP3s they downloaded off Napster. I spent five minutes messing around with Dodge overlays just to make something better. It's just unconscionable that a band that was so deservedly revered for its packaging could obliterate that reputation in one fell swoop. But that's what Smith had been doing ever since Wish. He's just sawing limbs off this band because he needs to see himself and his decisions reflected in every aspect of The Cure. After Wish, he stops letting The Cure be the sum of its parts. And in the studio, it's no different. The, the two survivors from Wild Mood Swings that he leans on for the rest of the 90s are Mark Plotty and Paul Corkett. Plotty does Wrong Number, which anchors the galore hits package. Plotty gets another remix credit, but it's really Paul Corkett who pulls away as he starts to get serious and think about, like, can I save this thing? Corkett's biggest credit prior to Wild Mood Swings is Sleepers In Betweener, which was a really early Britpop hit. And Smith took a shine to him while they were working up Wild Mood Swings at St. Catherine's Court. But Corkett was chosen for a much more cynical reason than simply getting on with Robert Smith. It's not often you can point to a poorly produced album and explain exactly how it happened by listening to one song, but with Bloodflowers, you absolutely can. Paul Corkett was the second. He was the engineer on Placebo's Pure Morning, and he applied every technique used on that song to Bloodflowers at Robert Smith's invitation. Ian Cooper, the guy who masters Bloodflowers, was mastering Placebo's black market music at the same time. My friend confessed she passed the test
the mix on Bloodflowers is notorious to the point where Smith, despite considering it one of the top five Cure records, started rolling his eyes over it probably within five years of it being out. So Corkin didn't really work out as a producer here, but he becomes the Cure's front of house guy from here on out. He runs the live show and has since the early 2010s. He's been eating quite well uh, as a member of Cure World for like 20 years now. And it's not Corkin himself that's to blame. You've got Smith being in a very controlling headspace. The, the real issue though is that they're using the same software, the same patches, the same digital room reflections that everyone else is using at this time. Bloodflowers sounded instantly dated and like revisiting it 20 years later, it's a time machine to such a bad period in pop music production. One of the records that's always reminded me of is Curve's comeback record, Gift. And it, again, it uses all the same patches. It's totally quantized and it straddles the same problem that brings Bloodflowers down. These unmusical, pointless laser beam loops that are such an irritating part of the palette of this record and so many records of the time because you know pro tools is reaching studio maturity and the novelty of pro tools and the simplicity it affords artists and producers to kind of dick around and, and swap things in and out just paint over the track kitchen sink that shit it led to so many questionable short-sighted decisions and they're all over blood flowers i mean for a while there everybody was trying to sugar over two chord bullshit with doctor who noises So in line with almost all Cure records, the best song on Bloodflowers is the opener, Out of This World. For me, Smith could have just released this song and walked off into the sunset. It's that good. Out of This World encompasses everything everyone who ever knew and loved The Cure wanted to hear just one more time. That two-note droning bend, this urging rotavibe explosion that leads into the, the main guitar line, this sparkling bass six lead. On a number of songs here, first among them out of this world, Smith does find an honest voice, a real voice, the voice of a 39, 40-year-old ex-rock star. He's communicating to himself, to his past, and most importantly to the fans in an honest way. Like, he's still in there somewhere. He can still find his way to the middle of the maze and paint that panorama of the Milky Way. We look back at it all as I know we will. There's kind of nowhere to go but down for me 
from here and watching me fall a 12 minute tirade of Hendrix pull-offs and like John Bonham fills. I like this song fine. It's twice as long as it needs to be and it's just a horrible sequencing decision and and it is full of those stupid booble beeble, you know, Pro Tools loops bubbling around. But there's two really important successful aspects of this song. One is you get the full-throated committed wail from Smith in the choruses. He's almost got the full raging bellow as perfected on the kiss. For my money, that's the vocal performance of Robert Smith's career on the kiss. He never reveals more of himself emotionally and I mean even physically as a singer as he does on the kiss. But beyond the vocals, Watching Me Fall hides one and only of the biggest surprises in The Cure's entire discography. There's a downshift in this. Like for a band that's pretty well just played 4-4 or at least straight time, like, you know, six different ways is sort of a 6-8. To hear them do something like this, it's so unexpected and so unlike The Cure that it almost feels like it pivots to Zeppelin or like a, it's a fucking prog rock or something. It's such a smile to hear it, and it's Jason Cooper leaving his first real mark on the page as The Cure's drummer. This It should have been the last song on the album. You know, it's 11 minutes long. If you want to keep it that long, it really should have closed the piece out, because the title track, it just tries too hard. It's too self-referential. It's too overtly calling back to pornography. At this point in his life, and his career, he's trying to resurrect that, but it's really like a childish pathos of pornography. You're, you're trying to pen this harrowing wail in the face of of impermanence and the uncertainty of life and the future and fear of death and all that but how can you do that when you're 40 smith's already dealt with death in real life which is to say that at this time in his life death is no longer romantic it's no longer tragic it's no longer a curse death is part of life you know, you hear that in Cut Here, the single that comes on the heels of Blood Flowers. This is his down-to-the-bone, sort of naked paean to Billy McKenzie, the brilliant, bon vivant frontman from The Associates. From a distance, McKenzie doesn't seem as important, but to everyone who knew him, he was just such a cherished personality and unique one-off guy but his suicide in 1997 was definitely a factor in smith's sort of downward spiral uh, leading into 1998 he'd lost touch with him smith is kind of beating himself up for the fact that he wasn't paying attention and mckenzie might have really needed him and maybe he could have made a difference and that's the kind of baggage anyone has coming out of a suicide but for that the lyrics are obvious and literal and they're far more sincere than so much of what he'd been shoveling since wish it's not a cure classic but you know much like out of this world particularly in the finale it calls back to lots of signature cure sounds and it resolves in a pretty charging finale but it's a worthwhile curio i like cut here
And so despite its length, Watching Me Fall is sort of of a piece with 39 later in the record. And on the one hand, this is a more melodramatic restaging of End, and it lacks End's kind of in-the-moment jamming druggy swagger. End happens in real time. And for me, that makes it all the more powerful. It's kind of uncertain. It feels like it could fall apart at any minute. Where 39 is just so much more mapped out, like right from the title. Smith sitting down and thinking, yep, time to write the song about turning 40. And, you know, the analogy he settles on is a fire going out. That's fucking grade school shit. I mean, come on. That said, the bass production on this song might be the best I've ever heard in my life. I can't think of another example of a bass sound so massive as the opening four notes of 39. And the song works, but it's almost the same melody as Watching Me Fall. Once they've stacked all the guitars and it's just gotten compressed to shit and piled it with pads and it's just well-covered ground. Even within the context of this album, beyond Out of This World, the high points in this record for me are the loudest sound, which is kind of a more spare approach to the same sort of sound as Out of This World, and then maybe someday. It's full of Pro Tools loop bullshit. It's over long at five minutes. It's like all I want from Kiss Me with a backbeat. No, I won't do it again I don't want to pretend If it can't be like before I've got to let it end I don't want what I want I have a change of head But maybe Someday which is a big adjustment because you're having to contend with Jason Cooper's overplaying style for the first time. The middle eight's pretty solid, but we're functionally listening to the same song twice. Th this needed a trim to four minutes and maybe another move. It would have made a world of difference. There's classic Cure guitar tone in here. Smith's voice is sorted out. It's very strong. It's just, it's a pretty neutral, unremarkable set of lyrics, but it does hold together. And given that there's only nine songs on this album and most of them are four chord dirges, it really would have been nice to polish up something resembling a single. Fiction did release maybe someday as a promo ahead of the record, but it was the album edit and The Cure were in 2000 no FM radio stations giving up five minutes to The Cure, a bunch of 40 year old English goss when, you know, they gotta log those vertical horizon spins, baby He's everything you want He's everything you need He's everything inside that you wish you could be He says all the right things and So a lot of sound is kind of a restatement of Out of This World, but Smith lands a solid left hook to any Cure fan with the guitar leads. They're right up to snuff with the original article. And Roger O'Donnell's synth pads are completely on point. And add to that, you know, vocally, it's that same majestic centered voice, the same one on Out of This World. And I just, this is how I'd prefer Smith sings everything past this point in his career. It's a place anyone would be fine with him speaking from, from the distance of accomplishment and experience. He's earned the right to not try to force, you know, this honky fake sexy i don't know what the fuck he's going for half the time if you're gonna write meaningful music it has to come from an honest emotional core yesterday's gone absolutely the loudest sound absolutely and out of this world the ultimate example of three solid songs here where smith has really figured out what he can do that will resonate in a way that's lasting side by side in silence they pass away 
away the day So comfortable So habitual And so nothing left to say And it's weird because The Last Day of Summer tends to get all the praise on this one. It's one of the most spun songs on the record. And like 39, it's supposed to be Smith reckoning with getting older, falling out of the spotlight. It's just, it's like, it's two face on. The message is just so heavy handed. And it takes a full two minutes of pretty subpar sort of cure architecture being built up until the vocals come in. And they're so frail and they're mixed so low that you don't even realize he started singing. And I feel the same sort of about There Is No If. there's just too much melodrama. It's like black eyeliner mall goth. You know, if you die, so do I. I mean, I just can't deal with that shit anymore. Plenty of fans have and do. There's an entire audience that came to The Cure already being this obvious and theatrical, and it's normal for them. And this doesn't feel forced or obvious or kind of performative and theatrical to them. You know, I can't blame them for arriving at this band at a different time of life than I did. That's ridiculous. But, you know, neither can I experience the version of The Cure they did. My least favorite thing on here is where the birds always sing, because it hangs on a riff Smith's been using for like 30 years. It's, you know, Chain of Flowers. It's, you know, half the Cloudberry Lost Wishes stuff. This is supposed to be an accent. It's one of Smith's tools in the toolkit. It is not supposed to be the entire hook of a song. The lyrics are just equivocal rambling about justice and injustice. It's so much like this is a lie. The world is neither fair nor unfair. Ideas just a way for us to understand But the world is neither fair nor unfair So one survives, the others die it was fucking pilloried in the UK and the US. Almost everyone said it was just this tedious, unending slog, and this song to me is emblematic of that. This is the kind of false cure that has been creeping in. The cure that's Robert Smith's trying to second guess what the cure or he should be singing about. As I've said throughout my dialogue on the 90s, it just creeps in worse and worse. But the weirdest thing about Bloodflowers, and it sort of echoes something that was said about Wild Mood Swings, is for me, maybe the most poignant song Smith writes for this record is is left off it, which is Spilt Milk. Spill Milk was set up similar to Yesterday's Gone, the Reeves Cabrell song, as an internet-only release. So it's in this weird legal limbo. It's not on Join the Dots, the four-disc B-side collection that, you know, marks the end of the Cure's association with fiction records. And it dates from a time where nobody was thinking about lossless audio quality. So I don't even have a lossless flack or high-quality copy of this song. Spilt Milk was part of the original demos for Blood Flowers. These were bootlegged relatively shortly after as Lost Flowers. And Lost Flowers is totally on YouTube. You can check the stuff out. What it reveals is that Blood Flowers started out, as you'd expect, as a bunch of lifeless Pro Tools bullshit. Smith could see it was turning into like round and round and round and wrong number and just more sequenced blear that has no gravitas at all. And he binned all of it. The only two songs they finished were Coming Up and Possession. You can hear the direction they were headed in. And you do have to give Smith credit because he stopped the train before it went completely off the rails. Uh, but I rank that song over and above almost everything on this record. Sometimes I wonder in the back of my mind 
live show still had a ways to go. You still had the loud chorus of fans pining for Boris Williams. It persists to this day, and it just sucks for Jason Cooper. He's saddled with the memory of a certain style, but that's not the problem. The reason The Cure stops sounding like The Cure, and I've been saying it throughout this entire podcast, it's not that Jason Cooper wasn't a good drummer. He absolutely is. And it's not even that he doesn't play the way Boris does. It's because they started using loops in concert. They'd never done this before. And it turned them from a live band that, like, without a net, just raging, a total fucking rock warhorse. At their peak, I've said before, they were as good as like Quadrophenia era of The Who. As soon as you add the loops and you start locking the performance down to a click, you're the fucking Thompson Twins. The Cure lost all of the manic energy they were charged for. They would burn the fucking place down three and a half hours. Good nights are bad, but they lost all the extemporaneous kind of subtlety that you need to work a concert, to feel the energy and play with it. Like, should we lay back a little bit during Fascination Street because of the way the vibe is? Why, what it's feeling like right now? Let's mind the groove. Fascination Street's going to be a little more psychedelic and wall of sound tonight. Or are things kind of dragging? And let's tear into the Hendrix, you know, underpinnings of this and thrash the shit out of it. It's been this way ever since Jason Cooper joined. They no longer have the ability to do this. And it's a choice Robert Smith made. They still play plenty of songs straight without loops, but I'm pretty sure there's a click track in there. I mean, the bottom line is some pragmatic changes were made to ensure like repeatable quality of the live show which is fair enough to fans but not a lot of the fans understood what they were missing relative to what the cure had been and maybe you know if you had been listening to entreat or you know bootlegs of the cure back in the boris days man it's fucking exciting like the albums are already fucking great and then you hear these live performances where they're just like fucking going crazy shredding you know to hear the variety of their moods in these bootlegs and all these different concerts was just so rewarding whatever those changes were they stabilized things for the 2000 Dream Tour in support of Bloodflowers. And they also stabilized things by playing more rational venues, you know, 5,000, 7,500 seat houses in Europe and two nights at the Greek Theater instead of Dodger Stadium. Right-sizing their draw was an important step because they needed to confront the band's reach. And that meant the energy levels were higher. You sell out a smaller venue, that's better than a half-empty Coliseum. And they ended the tour wonderfully at Jones Beach. This is a pretty legendary show because Smith was leaning on the this is our last tour ever bullshit shit harder than he had since disintegration and the dream tour just felt successful for all these choices you know bloodflowers is an estimable redemption of the cure and robert smith he thought more seriously about walking away from this band in 1998 than at any point since pornography actually in 1998 i thought i didn't really enjoy the cure anymore that was the first time ever that i'd really not liked being in the group and for about a year i had had enough and you know he stopped short of blaming all the outside influences that had distracted him but the marketing of bloodflowers was a leaden and over serious process as a result he declares it the conclusion of a trilogy of great cure albums like before it's released that's pretty fucking bold he's saying this is the last part of a trilogy with pornography disintegration and bloodflowers from the moment this copy hit the wires fans were aghast because we've been referring to 17 seconds faith and pornography as the trilogy since the mid 80s and it's not like smith doesn't know that i mean the trilogy is what made the cure's name that is hallowed ground if you want to co-op that to market a new album that's just pure fucking hype like he was instructing the fans to inter blood flowers as part of the canon along with the body of good works you know he hadn't gotten near adding anything to for eight years he had done nothing I mean, for me, I was old enough. I was 25. I could let this slide, you know, and just file it away. Smith doing his job. But then immediately after the Bloodflowers Dream Tour, and this just shows you what a fucking stubborn bastard this guy is. 
he stages a double live DVD of the band performing pornography, disintegration, and blood flowers in sequence. And he releases it as Trilogy in 2003. So in a sense, what this tells you and what you have to accept is that Robert Smith is possibly more invested and interested in and attuned to his own version of The Cure than we as fans are, especially in the modern era. Because in his mind, the associations between these three albums make complete sense based on what he was going through when he wrote them. He had no confidence in 1982. After pornography, he drugged his way through his fear of turning 30 on disintegration, somehow comes out with one of the best rock albums of all fucking time. And in 1998, you know, five years of chaos and bullshit and losses like Billy McKenzie, neither the band he'd been running nor he himself seemed capable or felt capable of building another lasting, legitimate long player that could add anything to this band's legacy. The trilogy concept is Robert Smith marketing his pride in having accomplished this and having written a significant, if not important, Cure album as he's turning 40 years old. But yeah, is Bloodflowers a peer to pornography or to disintegration? Of course it isn't. It's the only decent album The Cure have recorded since 1991, but it's a C plus at best. Whether it introduced you to the band or it arrived as kind of a welcome rejoinder to Wild Mood Swings, Bloodflowers belongs in every Cure fan's collection. Yeah.